from 2Keto LLC. It's the Obesity Code podcast with Dr. Jason Fung and Megan Ramos. Each week, we bring you lessons and stories from the Intensive Dietary Management Program in Toronto, Canada. I'm Carl Franklin. And on the show today, Jason and Megan answer questions from the field. The Obesity Code podcast is brought to you by 2Keto LLC, who strives to support the low-carb community with podcasts and other publications. And you can support our mission by making a monthly pledge, no matter how small, at patreon.2keto.com. And today we come back from vacation with a live Q&A show on autophagy, fasting, and complications of fasting. Recorded live with Jason, Megan, Richard Morris, and myself. The first question was about coffee and whether drinking it during fasting will break autophagy. Coffee turns out to have amino acids, but not a lot. And someone on Facebook was asking if drinking coffee turns off autophagy. Yeah, that's a really difficult question to answer because there's really no data one way or the other. So autophagy itself is a fairly uh, newly described phenomenon. It hasn't been around for a long time. What we know about it is that one of the main regulators of autophagy is something called the mechanistic target of rapamycin, or mTOR. So mTOR is uh, sort of a nutrient sensor. So it senses that nutrients are coming in. And insulin is also a nutrient sensor. That is, uh, it tells the body that there's nutrients coming in. They evolved separately, and in fact, mTOR seems to be a sort of much more um, ancient sort of a pathway compared to insulin. So if you look at unicellular organisms, the mTOR has been around a lot longer than insulin has. So it seems to be very, very, very important. And when mTOR uh, is activated, um, and insulin as well, they tell the body the nutrients are coming in and they turn off autophagy. So autophagy is this uh, comes from the sort of Greek word for self-eating. And it's sort of a cellular cleansing process where you take these uh, proteins that you don't need and you basically uh, break them up and either reuse the parts to make new proteins or you burn it for energy if you don't have enough energy coming in. And in a state of sort of excessive nutrition that is in our sort of modern state where we're more concerned about obesity than malnutrition, uh, autophagy may be one of the beneficial things that we don't get a lot of anymore. So the mTOR seems to be very, very sensitive to protein and certain amino acids is certainly very sensitive to, but how sensitive is coffee enough to do it? I actually have no idea. So for those people who want to make sure that they get the autophagy, then you would have to do one of the sort of classic sort of strict fast, which is water only fast, um, or even uh, dry fasting is a more extreme sort of version of that. But those sort of things, if you really want to make sure that you're getting there. At some point, they may find what threshold you, you turn on the mTOR and therefore turn off autophagy. Um, but it seems to be very, very sensitive uh, to it. Uh, and, and the reason is, I mean, if you think about these things, it's that the body links the nu nutrients coming in to growth of the cells. That is, if 
you think about a yeast, when there's no water and no sugar, it just kind of shrivels up and stays dormant. It doesn't die. It just stays dormant. You don't want to be growing. If the yeast were to continue growing in this sort of state where there's no nutrients, it's pretty. It's it's going to eventually die. You don't want to do that. And the cell is the same. You don't want to expend all your energy growing unless there's actually food coming in. You actually want to do the opposite, which is break down, uh, break down these these uh, proteins and so on. So, uh, so therefore, that's why nutrient pa- uh, nutrient sensors are so important for growth pathways. And one of the things I've always uh, argued, which everybody sort of uh, gets the wrong idea of, is that everybody thinks that growth is great. But for adults, growth is mostly not good. That is, if you look at obesity, it's a disease of too much growth. I mean, to be very sort of simplistic, cancer is a disease of too much growth. Alzheimer's disease is a growth of too much of this. There's just too much protein that's just junking up the system. Type 2 diabetes with the fatty liver and fatty pancreas is a disease of excessive growth. Atherosclerosis, which is the hardening of the arteries, the, the narrowing of the arteries, it's not plugged up by cholesterol. It's a disease of growth. That is, you have uh, white cells in there, you have uh, foam-filled cells, uh, and you have um, stimulation of smooth muscle cells, which is narrowing the, the artery. So it too is a disease of too much growth. So if if you have a disease of too much growth, restricting nutrients can be beneficial. If you're if you're on the other side of the path, you know, 200 years ago when people didn't have obesity and didn't have to worry about too much growth or too much nutrients, yeah, then it's not such a good thing. But in these days, it may be a very beneficial thing. So that's the sort of long answer. Coffee, if you want autophagy, I would stay off of the coffee because you don't know how much it's going to take. I tell all of the patients who are seeking autophagy, just water, and if they're going for long periods of time, then to occasionally supplement with some salt. Um, but that that's about it. We have a cancer patient um, in the clinic, and this guy, he won't wear deodorant. He doesn't brush his teeth. He uses a fresh toothbrush to brush his teeth, and he'll rinse with salt and, salt and water. Um because there's just not that much out there. I know there's there's all kinds of people claiming, oh, green tea, you know, there's properties of green tea that really enhance autophagy. Well, there's properties of green tea that might nix it in the butt altogether. Because people, like I, Jason always says, fasting should be fasting, eating should be eating. But every day I get about a dozen emails from people who are looking for autophagy now because it's, it's the rage of 2017, yeah. 2018. He won the Nobel Prize. Yeah. <laughs> people are like, well, you know, I'm pretty sure you can have uh, tea with some cream in it or coffee with cream in it. It was an article I got sent yesterday, actually. And I was like, we don't know. Like the research isn't there to to support that in, in any way. So just stick to stick to water if that's what you're looking for. And if you are going for a long periods of time, because some people will try to do water fasting for five or seven days. If they start to feel unwell, then supplement with a really good quality, very natural salt a little bit just to help bump them through. So just as a follow-up, fasting for weight loss and fasting for autophagy are two different goals. And just because you're not, uh, you know, you're having heavy cream doesn't mean you're not losing weight. Uh, It just means that you may or may not be going through the autophagy process. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's one of the things that we always say also is to keep your goals in mind, because if you're trying to lose weight, 
you don't need autophagy. It's not necessary. That is, you can follow a ketogenic diet, which still has plenty of protein in it, like moderate protein, adequate protein, and you can still lose weight with a ketogenic diet, no question about it. Uh, you're not going to get any autophagy because that protein that you're eating is going to turn off the autophagy. Um, the the flip side is that it's for fasting for weight loss is a lot easier to measure because you have a kind of a yardstick. There's really no yardstick that you can say, are you getting autophagy? Even for you know ketosis, there's a yardstick. You can do the breath test. You can do the blood test. You can you you know whether you you can test whether you're in ketosis or not. But you can't say the same for autophagy. And maybe we'll get there one day, but there isn't anything currently. So the only thing um, you know we say is that if you really want to make sure, then you got to make sure. Otherwise, I can't tell you whether it's there or not. And the thing about the nutrient sensors is that the mTOR and the insulin really sense different things. So um, protein is really the main thing for mTOR and uh, insulin senses both protein and carbohydrates. So everybody thinks it's just about carbohydrates, but it's not. If you look at the insulin response to animal protein, it's actually very, very high. Uh, and it's less so for vegetarian protein. So if you eat tofu and uh, beans, for example, there's a lot less insulin response. Your blood sugar is does not affect it because there are other compensatory hormones in it. So if you eat um, a steak, for example, which has lots and lots of animal protein, your insulin may go up quite a bit, but your blood sugar won't go up at all. So they're two separate things, and I think that's what one of the one of the things that is uh, always confusing. To people and saying, oh, I ate this steak and my blood sugar didn't go up at all. What's this whole insulin thing? I'm like, yeah, your blood sugar shouldn't go up at all. <laughs> it doesn't mean your insulin hasn't gone up at all. And that was one of the things that Joseph Kraft really made a huge distinction on was that you got to understand that insulin is different from blood glucose. I mean, they're related, but they're distinct things. So if you, um, so because, um, if you're after autophagy, you have to really be kind of zeroed down on your protein. People who are really sick, they find out about fasting, they binge read, they learn all about autophagy, and they want to jump in right off the bat and do everything 100% perfectly, and you just can't. And I, I see this all the time in clinic and with our clients in our online program, and I say you need to prioritize your goals. So first, fast for what's going to get you first or knock you down first. So if you're diabetic, fast for fire diabetes, then focus on weight loss, and then focus on autophagy to prevent the cancers that you don't have yet, you know, to prevent the, the neurological issues that you don't have yet, and let your body adapt. And so you utilize those training wheels, put some cream in your tea or coffee, have tea or coffee, use broth if you need it, because that's not going to interfere with you combating your insulin resistance and you reversing diabetes or losing weight. And then once you've got that mastered and once you've gotten the immediate risks out of the way, then focus on fasting for autophagy, preventing all these other gnarly conditions that we want to avoid developing later on in life. I, th I think that's a good point, too, because the whole thing is that the benefits of autophagy are still largely theoretical. So there seems to be a lot of upcoming research, which is really very good and interesting and so on. But whether it actually pans out that this is going to help you or not, I actually have no idea. As opposed to, say, if you're fasting for your blood sugar and you want to get 
you know, get off of your insulin. We know that if you go from, you know, 100 units of insulin a day to zero, you're a lot healthier. And that's going to have a huge impact on you. And you may or may not need to go to fasting. You may or may not need autophagy for that. You could do well with a ketogenic diet, for example. So it's very important to, to, to sort of, uh, you know, just to echo what Megan says, to make that priority. Because I actually have no idea. I, I just posted an article about autophagy and cancer, and there's also people who think that too much autophagy actually may worsen the cancer. And the reason for that is that autophagy is a survival mechanism. And if you already have cancer cells, and then you start to stimulate autophagy, it's possible that those cancer cells may be protected. That is, your, you know, the cancer cells are going to be stimulated, and they may um, actually, uh, you know, be protected because they're breaking down proteins for energy, and they're getting an energy source. So th there's a lot we don't know about it. Yes, it, it seems to be very interesting in terms of preventing cancer, but maybe once you have cancer, maybe it's not the best thing. Uh, nobody, you know, really knows too much about that. So I wouldn't go crazy on 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 this uh, because I, I don't know if it helps or not. Yeah. So I've got one last question about autophagy, and that is on timing. Is there a time uh, over which you should fast to maximize that? Uh, it's Again, we don't know. I can guess, but we don't know. So if you look at what happens during uh, fasting, we know that you uh, mostly use glycogen during the initial sort of 24 hours. It lasts roughly 24 hours. And then there's that period of gluconeogenesis from 24 to 36 hours. So that's the period of time that my guess is that there's going to be the most sort of autophagy and so on, because you're breaking down the proteins at that point for gluconeogenesis. And again, once again, that's the that's this is the whole sort of sticking point with a lot of people in fasting is that, oh, hey, you're breaking down protein, you're going to burn your muscle at 24 to 36 hours sort of thing. Um, it's possible, but I don't think that the research on alternate daily fasting really bears that out. Uh, however, I think that's actually a good thing because one, you're taking down old protein and then because of growth hormone increases, you're going to rebuild new protein. So I think it's actually not a breaking down process. I think it's actually a renewal process. If you look only at the breakdown at 24 to 36 hours and you miss that sort of refeeding uh, sort of burst of activity, then yeah, you're going to miss the whole picture. You're going to say, oh, well, you know, you're just breaking it down. But you don't miss, you don't see the fact that it's actually balanced out. Keeping in mind that the body always works this way. So if you look at bones, for example, your bones are not static. They're osteoclasts and osteoblasts. So when you uh, go through life, you actually uh, have cells called osteoclasts, which eat away at your bone. And you might say, oh, wow, that's terrible. No, because when you when you eat away the bone, it actually stimulates the osteoblast to produce new bone. So, but if you only look at the one side of it, you'd say, "Whoa, these cells are terrible. Let's just murder all these normal osteoclasts." It's like, yeah, you're gonna like have terrible brittle bones. That's in fact what happened with some of the uh, drugs that we use, bisphosphonates. We started seeing really, really brittle bones after like 10 years. It was uh, because the bones might have more calcium, but they're old and were not renewed. So the same thing happens. You get this 24 to 36 hour period of time 
where you are breaking down protein. And it's not necessarily muscle. It's also connective tissue and all that. And I think, you know, to me, that makes the most sense. And this is a pure guess. So keep that in mind. Nobody actually knows. Uh, That is my guess as the best place for uh, this sort of autophagy to maximize itself. So I I would guess that if you are trying to maximize this uh, sort of thing for whether you're trying to break down skin or, you know, connective tissue or um, Alzheimer's disease, uh, where you have sort of excessive protein in the brain, my guess is that it would be most beneficial to do these sort of 24 to 36 hour fasts. And then once in a while, like once every month, once every couple of months, do an extended fast. And the reason we do this, so uh, Megan and I have done this for a few patients, is that I don't know where where the best sort of benefits lie. So therefore, I'm going to cover all my bases, do an occasional long fast with some of these alternate daily fasts, 24 to 36 hours, trying to focus in on this sort of um, protein breaking down uh, period of time. And when you do these 24 to 36 hour fasts, there's no coffee, there's no anything but water and salt, right? That's for if for the autophagy uh, people. I mean, there's a few specific people who come to us and, and, and they say, and we're like, okay, you know, to our, to our um, knowledge, this is going to be the best protocol for you. But no, there's no, you know, somebody always goes, oh, have you proven this? I'm like, no. Nobody's proven any of this, <laughs> but you can do it or you cannot do it. It's up to you. And uh, regular 24 and 36 hour fast though, because I know we're, after this, we're going to ask questions. Um, so for autophagy, you just do water and, and salt if you, if you really sort of need it. But if you're just out there to help control your blood sugar levels and to, to shed some weight, you can have coffee, you can have tea, you can have soup broth, you can have some pickle juice that doesn't have sugar added to it. A lot of people prefer that in the summertime to the bone broth and and it helps a lot with cramping too. And you can use some fat for your tea or coffee. Usually if people are only going to do a 24 hour fast, um, I'm amazed at how much cream tea and people will put in tea and coffee in the first place. Um, when I start talking to them. So I usually encourage them to just sort of, you know, lay off of it as much as they can during the 24 hour fast. Like the bare minimum they need to get by during a 36 hour fast. I usually ask people not to exceed about three tablespoons of fat because, um, during that fast, just so they're really maximizing their, their, um, fasting. You know, I say you can, you can fast that you want to, when you're fasting to burn your body fat, but if you're consuming all this fat in cream or MCT oil or coconut oil during your fast, well, you're going to be burning that fat. And while that's great fat to burn, it's not the fat that you're trying to burn when you're actually fasting. So try to, to, to optimize that during the intermittent fasting periods for diabetes and weight loss. So to follow up on that, if you're doing, let's say, a two-day fast, a 48-hour fast or something, and during the first day you're burning glycogen, while you're burning glycogen, if you're going to ha- add fat, heavy cream to your coffee, would it be smart to do it at on that day? Because would that impede the burning of the glycogen or not? It doesn't really. The way that fat is metabolized is completely different. So um, the reason why carbohydrates and protein both stimulate insulin is because they both go to the liver for metabolism. So if you think about it, so you got proteins and carbs, 
when they when you absorb them uh, carbohydrates get broken down into glucose and proteins get broken down into amino acids they both get absorbed through the small intestine into the portal vein which flows straight into the liver at the liver that's where the liver decides what to do with them so either you sort of package them into glycogen or de novo lipogenesis you package them into fat proteins sort of get get uh, used up for the amino acids for new protein and then any sort of excessive does get turned into um, to fat as well but but fat doesn't do that fat's completely separate so fat Dietary fat, which is triglycerides, um, get absorbed through the lymphatic system and go straight into the blood vessels sort of thing. And then it goes into your adipocytes. So fat essentially gets stored sort of directly. And that's why there's no insulin, because you need insulin signaling for the liver sort of to know what to do with it. So the insulin goes up and your body says, okay, now we need to store some of this energy. Fat is completely different. It kind of just goes straight into your fat cells, which is why you can do these sort of fat fast because it will have no insulin effect. You'll still get your glycogen down and then eventually you'll get to your body fat. But if you're increasing your body fat stores at the same time, you're kind of working against yourself. It doesn't, it doesn't, fall it doesn't make the insulin fall though so so the question is well how can you ever lose weight if you're eating all this fat like on a ketogenic diet and the point is that you're letting your insulin levels fall and and it's it's sort of a battle between insulin and leptin um, because what happens is that when your fat cells enlarge so say you're to eat a diet of pure fat for example you're not going to have any insulin effect at all uh, say you just drink you know, olive oil. Uh, your fat cells will enlarge. At some point, as your fat cells enlarge, then your brain, uh, it, it stimulates leptin, which goes to your brain and tells you to stop eating so that you can sort of use up this fat because your body doesn't want to be too fat. It's not a sort of survival mechanism. You don't want to be too skinny and you don't want to be too fat either because you're going to get eaten and killed. So leptin is is sort of this regulator of body fatness. Uh, insulin, on the other hand, tells body to store body fat. So you've got these two kind of going against each other. So it's kind of insulin versus leptin. If you drop your uh, insulin, then you can let your leptin eventually become sensitive and then your body will activate these other mechanisms to stop eating. So that's how you can still eat a lot of dietary fat and lose weight because your body will sort of tell you it'll activate these satiety mechanisms it'll tell you to stop eating and so on and that's um you know that's one of the things like we like to do when people are fasting is to sort of let the insulin levels really really drop low and then resensitize to the leptin eat your body fat so it's 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 a it's it's sort of you have to look at both uh, sort of things. It's sort of insulin versus uh, leptin. So practically speaking, would it be a good idea if people find it hard to get into a fast to give them the fat on the first day while they're burning the glycogen, and then on the second day just switch to you know water and salt? 
Yeah, I think that's a perfectly good strategy. So the, the dietary fat, the cream, say, for example, that you take on the day one is not going to impede the glycogen burning. It's not going to impede your insulin falling, which is what we really want. We want the insulin to fall and we want it to stay low for a good period of time so that you break the sort of insulin resistance, which will sort of resensitize the leptin because it's really kind of head to head insulin versus leptin. When insulin wins, that's when you become obese. That's the that's the bottom line. So you have to knock down the insulin as best as you can. We tried to give leptin. We tried to do all sorts of things to increase leptin. It didn't work. It wasn't strong enough to overcome the insulin. So we know from insulin, it's really the sugar, the insulin resistance, which comes from the fructose and fatty liver a lot, and also the the, the, the frequency of meals. It's like those are all, if you're just kind of pumping insulin in all the time. It's just if you're eating 10 times a day, you're pumping insulin in all the time. Well, you're going to knock down that leptin and, 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 and then you're, you, you got the, the insulin kind of taking over and that's when you become obese. We'll often have people do like a bit of what we call a fat fast um, before they start to do sort of any sort of fasting just to just to help them enter their fast in a nice satiated place with a slightly better hormonal regulation. And it makes a big difference. It makes a huge difference. Every time I've, I talk to a patient, this is a very common occurrence. Last week, I fasted for 36 hours and it was so easy. And yesterday I tried to fast for 36 hours and it was so hard. And I'll say, well, if you fasted last Wednesday, what did you eat Tuesday night before your fast? And they're like, oh, Megan, we really feasted. Like we had two avocados, we ate some ribeye. And then I'll say, okay, well, what did you have last night before you fasted? Oh, a salad with a little bit of oil. And like you gotta, you, the eating the fat before the fast can definitely set you up for a much more successful fast by just sort of priming your body to get ready to do a fast. So this question came from our website, uh, and the question goes, why doesn't IF, which is intermittent fasting, say one keto meal a day, throw your body into starvation mode? Although I'm certain I could gorge down enough calories in one sitting to achieve my macros for the day, don't ask me how I know, I don't see that as a viable option. Yeah, that's a good question. It's one that uh, a lot of people ask because they get confused with sort of the insulin hypothesis and the calorie hypothesis. So when people think it's all about cutting calories, they say, well, 24 hours uh, period of time, 2000 calories should be the same, whether you take a single meal or whether you take it kind of constantly spaced out throughout the day. And it's uh, really just not true. That's not, that's not how the body works. It's just like you could have uh, an average uh, temperature in Death Valley of like 20 degrees, but you wouldn't say it's really comfortable there, right? You know, on, on the days you're like scorching hot, at the nights you're like freezing cold. So the average doesn't tell you anything. Um, and you got to realize that insulin, uh, you know, insulin is really based on two sort of things. It's based on how high the spike of insulin goes and how long it persists for. So if you have a really high spike and then low for the other sort of 23 out of 24 hours, it's a lot different from a physiologic standpoint than taking a little bit constantly throughout the day, just like the Death Valley. But the body works that way. If you look at hormones, hormones like uh, growth hormone is, does the same thing. You get a big spike 
uh, sort of at 4 a.m., 5 a.m., and then it's kind of undetectable through most of the day. Um, parathyroid hormone, most hormones are actually like that. You get a single spike and then you get it really quiet. And that's because you don't want to sort of stimulate it all the time because uh, you get resistance that way. So again, if you look at uh, even drugs, uh, for example, if you continually take a drug, you're going to develop resistance to it. If you uh, look at nerve cells, for example, and you stimulate it once or you stimulate it all the time, you just develop uh, resistance. So the whole thing is the same. We know this. I mean, it's like the boy who cries wolf. If you cry wolf and you do it all the time, then people just ignore you. Um, if you cry wolf once and then you don't cry wolf for like another year and then cry it again, people will respond that when you come back. So it's the same thing with the body. We're not talking about because we're not trying to influence calories. Calories is a fairly useless concept. And everybody says, well, are you saying that calories don't count? I'm saying it's, it's the entirely wrong way to think about it. What you're trying to influence is insulin, insulin resistance, which indirectly influences your body set point. I think the body set point is what really controls your body weight, and it's mostly dependent upon insulin resistance. Like There are other things like cortisol and so on. So there's a lot of sort of uh, things that matter. So that's the kind of answer. So if you eat 2,000 calories at a single sitting once a day versus 2,000 calories spaced throughout the day, there's just, there's a different response in terms of insulin and insulin resistance, even though the calories are exactly the same. And that's why the fasting is, is, is a completely different uh, than the calories. See, the whole reason people get confused between calories is that they say, well, does that mean I can eat you know, as much as I want, as long as it has zero, you know, no carbs, I'll just eat steak all day and lots of protein. And it's like, no, no, no. The reason people get confused with the calories is that everything that you eat practically um, stimulates insulin. Uh, unless you drink like pure fat, which is sort of, uh, other than bulletproof coffee, not something that's sort of realistic. Nobody eats sticks of butter. I've been known to shoot olive oil, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> Some people do it, but it's not a normal sort of thing. <laughs> Who does that? That's not very normal. <laughs> but, you know, the, the bulletproof coffee is a great example because that's a hack where people deliberately take something sort of unnatural um, to, to, to kind of gain the benefits of it. And it's because it has a ton of calories and almost no insulin effect. But the reason that if you look at normal foods, like real foods, um, all foods contain a kind of blend of carbohydrates, protein, and fat. So all foods will stimulate insulin. All foods also contain calories, for example, but they're not the same. It's not like uh, – so, so calories don't really count, but – it's the calorie containing foods also have varying degrees of insulin effect. So that's the, that's the bottom line. There's, you know, that's why people get confused. It's like, not like you can say, well, avocados are good. So I can eat, you know, 50 avocados a day and I should lose weight. You might, or you might not, because it is still going to have that insulin effect. And if you're insulin resistant, then there are certain foods that are going to be worse. And what it means practically is that not all foods are equally fattening, which again is something that's really just intuitive. That is, if you eat 
grilled salmon, it's not the same. It's not as fattening as brownies. It's just not like, and, but the calorie people insist that they are like 600 calories of donut is the same as steak and eggs, 600 calories. No, it's completely different. It's because the insulin effect of the two are different. And I assume there would be different individual responses based on how much insulin an individual makes and for how long after a, a, a challenge. Yeah, absolutely. And if you look at genetic um, genetic contributions to obesity, um, you see that different people respond differently. So some people are much more prone to obesity. Now, that doesn't explain how an entire population becomes obese. So the United States, for example, the genetic pool hasn't changed a huge amount, but in the sort of past 40, 50 years, there's been a huge change in obesity. Genetics can't explain that, but it can explain the difference between, say, one person and the next. Uh, they will have different um, responses to the insulin. Uh, some will produce a lot and therefore have a real propensity to gain weight. And other people, and everybody knows these people, they eat whatever they want and they never really gain weight. I like to tell people uh, that if they really are stuck on the whole calories in, calories out mechanism, then obviously what they want to focus on is increasing the rate at which calories go out, right? And that's perfectly okay. Now, if I can get you to agree on that, because obviously if you're burning calories at a lower rate, uh, then person B is at a higher rate, person A isn't going to lose as much weight. So if you want to focus on increasing calories out, what do you do? Well, now, now you're talking about insulin. Yeah, absolutely. I think that this is... Um, you know, the whole calories thing, I think, is is a huge, huge obstacle uh, for people to overcome. And that's why they can't understand why um, 2,000 calories at a single setting, uh, you know, oh, I'm going to go into starvation mode because when I took the – or 1,500 calories, say, you know, I took 1,500 calories spread, you know, over eight meals a day and my metabolism got shot to hell. Uh, so if I take 1,500, I have – you know, in a single setting, it's not going to be the same. And it's like, no, uh, because what you're trying to do, for example, is take the 1500 calories for that day and then take 500 calories from your stored fat and burn that. And then you'll burn 2000, which is what we want, right? We, what we're trying to do is open up the stores of fat for burning because those are all stores of energy. I mean, that's what fat is. It's, it's, it's a store of food energy. So you want to take the, the amount that you are and take about an amount of body fat and slop it in and burn the whole thing uh, kind of thing. What you, you, know, you can't do that very easily when you're eating all the time, which is why we focus a lot on sort of meal frequency and intermittent fasting, even though things like time-restricted eating, which is, you know, just a nicer way to put it. It doesn't freak people out the same way as the word fasting does. Um, but we focus on that a lot because people don't talk about it uh, a lot. They, they assume because of the calories theory that you sort of 1,500 calories throughout the day and 1,500 calories at one sitting are the same. It's like, no, 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 no. You got to get out of this. Jason, you said something a few minutes ago that, that I never thought of before, but that your body doesn't want to be too fat because... Fat animals look delicious to other animals. <laughs> True right? enough. That's right. 
I never thought of that before. <laughs> yeah. And, I'm, and I'm trying is... to not look very delicious <laughs> to a cannibal who sees me walking around. <laughs> we had a patient say that in clinic once. These two patients in, in our clinic, they were arguing about fat. And the one who was in support of, of dietary fat, um, he looked at the other patient who was, still has a very anti-fat um, beliefs. And he said, listen, if we were stranded on a desert island, are you going to eat me or are you going to eat her? And he pointed at me. He's like, you're going to eat me. There's a lot more to feed off of. She's got nothing. She's like a little snack. Um, so <laughs> I think that the thing is that there's all these people out there that say things like, well, we're all genetically programmed to eat. And therefore, now we eat, live in a world of kind of food all the time. We can't help ourselves. It's like, no, 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 no. Your body actually has very, very powerful mechanisms to stop overeating. Okay. So if you eat a buffet, uh, you know, you go to the all you can eat Chinese buffet and you're really, really stuffed. And then you'd say, oh, somebody says, here, take another pork chop. You'd be like, blah, I want to throw up. Right. So, your body has these mechanisms that stop you from eating. And there's multiple ones and they overlap. So for example, there's stretch receptors in the stomach. That is, if you have a lot of stuff in your stomach, then you can't put any more in. And you see this, for example, with bezoar. So people who swallow their hair and stuff, uh, their, their stomachs get filled with hair and nothing goes down. It's like, so they're full. They don't actually can't eat because they're so full or they eat a little bit and then they feel very full because of the stretch receptors in the stomach. There's um, peptide YY, which is a, a very sensitive to protein. So when you have a high protein meal, there's incretins, which also uh, we actually use um, therapeutically. So incretins, which are sensitive to protein, for example. So if you inject yourself with incretins, or incretin stimulating agents, then you actually become full. And when you go over that, you just become super nauseated. And that's one of the mechanisms why these incretin uh, drugs like um, lixenotide or xenotide, uh, they produce nausea, but they also cause weight loss. So there's peptide YYs, there's incretins, there's uh, gastric stretch receptors, there's cholecystokinin, which is sensitive to fat. So if you eat fat, cholecystokinin goes up. And then ultimately there's leptin. So leptin is when your fat cells are too big. So you can see that your body actually has all these mechanisms to prevent you from overeating because it knows that if you get too fat, you're going to die and it doesn't want you to die. So, you know, all these sort of arguments that you hear all the time that, oh, it's the food environment. It's the, you know, it's the, uh, yeah, it's too delicious. <laughs> the sort of, oh my God, that is like, uh... I've had this sensation and you guys probably have too. And I know a lot of other people who have, and I know Richard has, because we talked about it on two keto dudes of being absolutely physically stuffed and yet ravenously hungry. When I was diabetic, that was the case. I would exceed the capacity of my stomach to carry food and still be hungry. And one of the things that happened to me when I went on a ketogenic diet is I got control over that process. I think that there's uh, the, the, the reason that a lot of the real foods, like even carbohydrate-containing foods, um, are difficult to overeat is that we've devised these sort of satiety mechanisms to it. So if you take the white potato, like a baked potato, for example, if you look at the satiety index, 
it's extremely high. So for the same amount of calories, the amount of satiety you produce from a potato is very high. Now, there may be other mechanisms. There may be resistant starch and whatever. But, you know, that's why I say it's not just about the carbohydrates. It's where I differ from some of the people saying it's all, you know, to me, it's all about the insulin, which is not the same thing as to say that it's all about the carbohydrates because there are so many other factors that have to go into it. So the the thing is that when you start getting a lot of these processed foods, they start evading all of these satiety mechanisms. So you can take, um, you know, something like wheat and then process the hell out of it, get rid of all the protein, which is going to satiating, get rid of the fat, which is satiating. You're left with sort of pure glucose um, and then grind it into a very fine dust which is very quickly absorbed. So all of these things, or you take tapioca starch versus tapioca root. People have been eating tapioca for a long time. People eat sweet potatoes in Okinawa and do very well. But you can't take these potato starch, for example, and, and flour and all this and, and pretend that it's exactly the same thing because it's not. They're, they're, they're processed. They're in an unnatural form. So they're just sort of not the same uh, thing. So processing really evades a lot of the satiety mechanisms. Is it deliberate? Uh, in some sense, it is deliberate because you want, you know, companies want you to eat more of it. So they, they make it a, a sugar, obviously, uh, adding sugar makes it uh, much more sort of um, easy to evade these satiating mechanisms. So s same thing, you go to the, the buffet and it's like you can't eat another pork chop, but you could eat some ice cream or you could eat uh, some candy or you could eat some apple pie. And it's like, okay, why? Why is that? Because they're refined carbohydrates and they evade these sort of satiety mechanisms. So therefore, you can still eat 500 calories of apple pie when you couldn't eat 500 calories of pork chop. It happened to me mostly with pizza. Yeah, <laughs> Pizza was one thing in the days of my eating carbs that I could just eat and eat and eat and eat and, eat and get hungrier and hungrier and hungrier and fuller and fuller. It's just insane. All right, guys. Well, this one came from the forum, the ketogenic forum. Uh, I think it's important to have an episode regarding some of the potential complications coming from uh, breaking a fast or a keto and how to avoid them if possible. I consider myself someone who likes to research before starting something, and I never crossed a particular topic. Refeeding edema. I fell off the wagon and resumed my previous habits of eating after fasting over one week. I attempted a two-week fast but made it only eight days. I resumed my usual carb-loaded diet and did not continue to weigh myself as I knew I would have a little bit of weight gain resuming carbohydrates. Within the sixth day after my fast break, for whatever reason, I decided to add lots of salt to a few meals I had that day because you need it with low-carbon fasting. By the evening, I was edematous, meaning I had edema. I was so swollen, my feet and lower legs were huge, full of fluid. I'm talking about four-plus pitting edema. I weighed myself after that, and I had gained 16 pounds of fluid. I could have went into pulmonary edema, but I didn't. I had a BNP drawn, and there was not any stress to the heart. But I, I And what's BNP? Um, it's brain natural erratic peptide. It's kind of a measure of how much fluid is in the lungs. Okay. But I feel this is important to discuss on how to avoid it. 
I know I probably should have avoided placing that extra salt on that sixth day. I also should have continued to weigh myself. I don't know if I gained 16 pounds in one day or six days, but either way, that was 16 pounds of fluid in six days and definitely way too much in a short time. It has been months since that episode, and I continue to get dependent edema 1+. I wholeheartedly believe in low-carb, and I love following Dr. Fung. I've been skittish to do another fast because of the potential for refeeding edema. I do wish it could be discussed in further detail in a podcast or blog post. So refeeding edema, there's two sort of refeeding syndromes. Um, and so there's refeeding syndrome, which is uh, where the phosphorus goes too low. So after, uh, generally both of these happen with extended fast. So when you're going long fast uh, without sort of um, adequate preparation. So um, it's it's sort of like everything else. If you just jump off the deep end, sometimes you run into real trouble. So if your body is sort of used to the fasting and, you know, no problem if you're feeling well throughout the whole thing, um, generally there's no problems. Uh, where people get into trouble is when they start going into these super long fasts kind of right off the bat without any sort of uh, previous experience of what how they're going to handle it because everybody sort of handles a little differently. So there's two sort of refeeding um, problems. One is refeeding syndrome, which is um, typically happens with malnourishment. So if uh, one of the big risk factors is if you're relatively lean to begin with. So if you're starting off at 200 plus pounds, then you don't have to really worry too much about either of these. But um, but I'll say there's uh, that for refeeding syndrome, that's especially the case. So we saw that a lot with people who are relatively lean, so prisoners of war sort of thing, uh, concentration camp uh, people. And then as you start to eat, your phosphorus star starts to go into the cells uh, because insulin starts to go up. So people who have very low insulin levels for a long, long time because they're actually really starving – their insulin goes up, the phosphorus goes into the cells, they haven't gotten adequate nutrition, so the phosphorus levels fall and then you can have heart attacks and your heart can go into abnormal rhythms, you can get very weak, you can, you know, basically can't stand up sort of thing. So that's refeeding syndrome. Uh, so happens if you uh, go generally over about five days is a higher risk of it. If you're on a malnourished, there's a higher risk of it. So one of the things that is uh, behind this sort of uh, move more towards intermittent fasting. So this is what happened in the 60s and 70s when there was these <laughs> – they had these studies where they would just take these relatively lean people and put them on like 30 days of fasting. Like you can read these studies and it's like, wow, you're crazy. Um, so then they ran into trouble because some people like died. And then everybody said, oh, fasting is really bad. I'm like, okay, there's a huge difference between 30 days right off the bat in a lean person and 24 hours. So much of the move back towards uh, fasting is more towards the shorter end of fasting, which is intermittent fasting, time-restricted eating, because your risk is much lower. So these refeeding syndromes and refeeding edema 
typically happen with the longer duration fast, so over five days. Refeeding edema is a little bit different. So edema refers to excess fluid uh, in the body, and usually you get uh, sort of dependent edema, which means that when you stand up, the dependent areas, uh, which is the feet, tend to swell up. And it's graded sort of one to four. So four is the sort of the most uh, that you can do. And again, it's probably a sort of an insulin effect, although the why people get this sort of refeeding edema is still uh, relatively unknown. There's not a lot of people who have studied it, um, mostly because there's been really no data on fasting for a long time. I mean, we know that a lot of people fast for extended periods of time and don't have any problems. Uh, and yet other people, will, when they start to eat, because because it's when you start to eat again that you get these trouble. Well, Jason, this person also said that when they came off the fast, they ate carbs. They ate lots of carbs. Yeah. And I know that that's the only time I get edema is when I'm eating carbs. And I haven't had yeah. it since I've been low carb. And, and it seems that what happens is that the insulin, so insulin, one of its other effects is to cause salt and water retention. So again, if you're coming off in a time of fairly low insulin, then you start to eat and you're eating really high carb meals, your insulin is gonna go up a lot. And it's gonna if it stays up, you're gonna retain a lot of water. And you, you really shouldn't retain that much water, but we, we've seen it in people. So again, seems to be a, in the longer duration fast and maybe if you're eating a lot of carbohydrates or stuff you're not supposed to um, uh, before, but it's the salt and water retaining uh, effect of the insulin that, that is the problem. So again, um, if that's a problem, and it can be a problem, then you, you really should stick more towards the shorter end of the fast where you're not gonna get into these uh, sort of problems. We, a lot of people are super concerned about refeeding syndrome, new people um, who have just sort of done some mild reading online and, you know, um, see that there's benefit in fasting, but worry about the consequences. And in clinic, I mean, we... We have really great patients. Um, they're very mindful of what they do and, and how they break their fast. And I really encourage that. I say, you know, if, if you're someone who's going to go gung ho on Christmas Day and you're trying to fast before Christmas Day, don't fast up to when you're going to have a wild party and, you know, eat every gingerbread cookie in sight and eat a whole box of chocolate turtles. Break your fast the day before. Break it and, you know, let your body sort of adapt and, and give your digestive system going again. Eat sensibly, you know, that day before you go to your party, eat a meal too, even if it's, you know, early, earlier on in the day, have some good fat. And then, and then that way you should be satiated too. So you won't be going as crazy with the carbs. But we haven't seen any issues. I mean, we've worked with thousands of people now in office and online and there have been no real major issues. Um, we sort of, um, drive patients towards where we think they need to be going with fast. So when we have complicated patients in clinic, especially those that, you know, are really prone to retaining a lot of water, um, and, uh, and struggle with, with extreme water retentions. Like we, we have some people who non-fasting, you know, can retain a crazy amount of water just sort of depending on their other health complications. So they're never someone that we would encourage to say, Hey, you know, let's start off with seven days of fasting. You there, we start off a lot slower. So you have to exercise, exercise caution and you have to fast responsibly. <laughs> like you have to, you have to drink responsibly, you have to fast responsibly. And, you know, so breaking your fast with a whole 
dozen Krispy Kreme donuts followed by a tub of Ben and Jerry's is not fasting responsibly. No. You also tell people to eat a small meal first when they come off a fast, like very small. Handful of nuts, a little bite of avocado, a strip of bacon, something like that, and then wait for like a half an hour. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the things that we've always said is that the longer you're going to fast, the more gently you have to break it, especially if, particularly for these refeeding um, problems. And just to, you know, kind of reinforce what Megan said is, you know, people say, oh, I have all these problems. And it's like, I always think we never have these problems. Like we treat lots and lots of people, but we don't have these problems because we have already the knowledge of what the potential benefits and the potential risks are like we'll have like these 80 year old people we don't start them on like a 30-day fast like that's crazy like we start them with like time-restricted eating like uh you know skip breakfast and then go to 24 hours it's like yeah because they're frail and they're elderly like you gotta like use some common sense as opposed to somebody, uh, you know, and, and sometimes you read these things, oh, I was feeling weak as a kitten and I pushed through. I'm like, oh my God, like you're, you can't do that, right? When you think there's something wrong, you got to stop. You can't just push through. And that's one of the things that we always say is like, you know, if you do, if you, um, you know, use it kind of without any knowledge and irresponsibly, then you can't blame you know, the tool, because it's only a tool. It can help some people, but it can hurt some people too. And if you do it badly, well, it's not to say that it's it's a completely useless thing because that's what's happened, right? So th for 30 years, yeah, there are problems when you don't eat for a long time and you do it in the wrong person. But then they say, well, we, nobody should ever do this. It's like, yeah, but it can help a lot of people. So why would you throw that away? Like it's throwing the baby away with the bathwater. So that's the thing is to, is to always keep sort of, you know, have some knowledge, have some guidance, start gently. I mean, and then when you end your fast, end it gently. Don't just go crazy. I mean, you don't, you go for 30 days without eating anything, then you decide to eat this huge meal. I'm like, that's, that's not going to end well either. Everyone sort of wants to jump in. And this is actually something Brenda and I were talking about last night. Brenda Zorn, who's our newest IDM team member. Everybody wants to jump in right away, but you can't. And so say you're going to go to the gym and uh, you wanted to bodybuild after never bodybuilding in your life for 40 years. And you're going to try to do the same workout that Arnold Schwarzenegger did in his Terminator Prime days. Like, even if you can get through that workout, you're probably not getting out of bed the next day. You're not doing it again. <laughs> you could seriously hurt yourself too. So sometimes you have to accept what your body's capable of doing. When I first started fasting, talking to Jason about it and, and reading on it, I'm like, oh, I can fast for seven days. Well, at like 18 hours, like my head was spinning. I felt fatigued. I felt terrible. I realized I didn't, there were things that I sh clearly should have done, like drank water um, a little bit more than I had or uh, taken some broth that would have helped. But I had to start where I was comfortable with and build your way up. I always tell patients, you know, during a long fast, if you're paralyzed, by thoughts of cheesecake, that's not an excuse to break your fast. But like, if you don't feel comfortable to drive, if you don't feel like you can walk in a straight line, if you're staring at one page and you have to read the same sentence over more than a couple of times, 
call it a day, hang your hat up, go get something, go get something to eat. And that's just your body's own limitation. I would love to be able to bench press my body weight. I'm at about 40 pounds right now, <laughs> right now. Um, and you have to deal with your own body. And just because I want to bench press my body weight and I'm only at 40 pounds doesn't mean that I can't get to that eventually. It's going to come with time and practice, um, doing so. So, Stay within your own body limitations. Don't try to, don't try to do anything that your body's not ready for. There's a time to give yourself a kick in the butt when you're sitting on your couch and you're just bored and, you know, the refrigerator's calling you, you know, well, get up, do laundry, get up, go for a walk. Um, but when you don't feel like you can get up and go for that walk, that's, you know, exercise some common sense, guys, and you know, go to the fridge then and, you know, get some, get some vegetables, grab a handful of nuts, have some olives. Um, Really utilize common sense and stop trying to the biggest thing. Brenda and I were noticing we, we were chatting last night about some of the Facebook talks is that everybody's starting off at their own position um, and or a different position. Sorry. Um, and uh, we all have different genetic makeups that um, can cause us to struggle with different things or be more predisposed, more stubborn fat cells, more stubborn insulin resistance. We all have different histories with dieting too. So you can't really compare the metabolic rate of a man who's never dieted in his life to a woman who's done chronic 500 calorie a day diets, you know, her sure. whole life. And you can't expect that woman to have the same results from the first week of fasting as that man. So everybody needs to give themselves a, a sort of a pat on the back and, and be realistic. But fast, um, fast, uh, cautiously. And there's a time to push through and there's a time to say, all right, you know, this is, this is where I made it today and celebrate, you know, wherever you've made it and strive have to do a little bit more next time solid advice megan we're just about out of time richard and i would like to thank you guys for doing this and going off on this crazy idea with us and and uh, we're happy to be a part of it yeah thanks guys uh much appreciated all right terrific thanks for all your hard work guys it's a great show and that's our show for this week you've been listening to the obesity code podcast lessons and stories from the intensive dietary management program the Obesity Code podcast is brought to you by 2Keto LLC, who strives to support the low-carb community with podcasts and other publications. And you can support our mission by making a monthly pledge, no matter how small, at patreon.2keto.com. I'm Carl Franklin. We'll see you next time.